source with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to the RoboHub podcast and our very first episode of 2018. In this episode, we will learn about an open source prosthetic knee and ankle system being developed to help support research that ultimately will help amputees. Currently, one of the problems with the development of prosthetic knees and ankles is that researchers spend lots of time developing their own hardware so that they all end up using their own designs, which means that results aren't easy to reproduce and often it's difficult to develop designs further. Elliot Rouse from the University of Michigan and collaborators at the University of Texas and Carnegie Mellon University, supported by funding from the National Science Foundation, are trying to solve exactly this problem. They're developing an open-source prosthetic knee and ankle. They hope that this will ultimately allow researchers to work on a common platform to share their learning, driving innovation in prosthetic leg design. To find out more about this idea, our interviewer Audro spoke to Rouse about the low-cost, easy assembly design of the open-source prosthetic knee and ankle, as well as the timeline for development and dissemination. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Elliot Rouse. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Michigan. I'm a core faculty member in the Michigan Robotics Institute. Would you tell me about um, your research and what motivates it? So I direct the Neurobionics Lab. And so in this lab, we study the way kind of the nervous system controls uh, the body during locomotion. And we use this information to build better wearable robotic devices, like exoskeletons and robotic prostheses. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about an open source prosthetic knee and ankle. Um, Would you... Tell me about your collaborators for this project. So this project is the development of an open source robotic leg. It was funded by the National Science Foundation through the National Robotics Initiative. And my collaborators are Professor Bobby Gregg at the University of Texas, Dallas, and Professor Hartmut Geyer at Carnegie Mellon University. Mm -hmm. And why do we want an open source leg? So one of the things that's hindering the development of robotic prosthetic legs is the ability to control these systems. So we have lots of researchers around the country and around the world developing control algorithms. The problem is each researcher has to build their own robotic leg hardware that they can then deploy their control algorithms on and test their performance. So each investigator has a different piece of robotic leg hardware, and when it comes time to compare their control strategies, it's extremely difficult because we don't know whether the difference in results is associated with the difference in robotic hardware or the difference in control strategy. So the goal of this project is to build an open source, kind of low-cost robotic leg that we can disseminate to the research community, so sort of standardize the hardware people use to develop their control strategies, and hopefully kind of improve the development of these prostheses that eventually will impact people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of questions can we start to answer with this open source leg? One of the greatest questions kind of associated with the the clinical 
deployment of robotic legs is the question of how do you know what somebody is trying to do when they're wearing a robotic leg. So that you know, a robotic leg is capable of kind of action on its own. So it can do anything at any time. So something has to provide it a set of instructions which says, you know, you need to go to this angular position at this time or provide this amount of effort at this time. And so people are developing these control strategies, but it's extremely difficult to know what the person is trying to do. So that's probably, I'd say, the greatest control barrier. And there are a number of researchers around the country and around the world trying to determine this. Mm -hmm. And so is this leg going to be a solution for all prosthetic leg problems? I'd say sort of no. This, <clears throat> so this prosthetic leg is great for testing you know, powered knee or powered ankle uh, control, but I'd say it won't solve everyone's solution. There are lots of very talented researchers in mechanical design building robotic legs, and there's lots of work still be to, to be done on the optimal robotic leg design. This basically provides kind of a foundation that researchers can quickly and easily uh, implement their control strategies and kind of iterate on their, on their research. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'd like to get into describing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it look like? So we have a knee and an ankle system. So each, each so knee would be one uh, axis, and it's powered with an electric motor. We have an ankle that's also a single axis powered with an electric motor. And the systems are separate, and they have very, very similar mechanical properties. So we use a motor that was developed by the drone industry, so it's very, very wide and provides a lot of torque. So these motor topologies enable us to make some kind of interesting and helpful design decisions on, on what the knee actually looks like and what its mechanical properties are. So we have a motor, it goes through a transmission, and then that goes to the output at the joint, kind of similar to how your muscles contract. That goes around a linkage system, which is your tendons and, and radii of your joints, and that provides effort around your joint axis. Mm-hmm. The ankle is the same. It has the same transmission ratio, which is 48 to 1, but it has a slightly different architecture. So it has, I think the last stage of the transmission is a different type of transmission, which was used to help kind of compact, make the design more compact for the ankle form factor. Mm-hmm. And then tell me a bit about the foot. So the foot, at the bottom of the ankle, the output of the ankle joint is a prosthetic foot. So the foot has, there's two options depending on what researchers would like to use. One option is that it uses an off-the-shelf, low-profile carbon composite prosthetic foot. So we use the low-profile Veriflex from Oser. Mm -hmm. So that can be mounted directly to the prosthetic ankle. It kind of looks like the sole on the inside of the shoe. Yeah, it does. But it's rigid. Yeah, and a, and a foam foot shell would go around it, which would make it sort of look more like an actual foot. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so one option is to use a commercially available prosthetic foot, and another option is that it, you can have a kind of a flat foot that could be machined from anything, either either a composite material or, or aluminum. Mm-hmm. All right, and you mentioned motors from drones. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? Historically, prosthetic legs have been developed kind of most robotic and automation mechanisms have been developed with motors that are long and skinny. So they're sort of barrel-shaped. They're long and skinny, and they develop mechanical power by going very fast. So they provide a little bit of torque, they go really fast, and then a transmission kind of gears them down back to a kind of a useful speed. Mm-hmm. The creation of drones re- required a different type of motor. So mo- drones do not have transmissions. 
the motors directly drive the propellers. So all of a sudden, we needed to be able to have motors that could go more slowly, but produce way more torque. Mm -hmm. So the drone industry created a number of different motors, specifically sort of a topology that's called outrunner or exterior rotor, mm -hmm. and an aspect ratio that's very wide and very thin. So the torque of a motor will increase with its radius squared. So they produce much more torque uh, in a very different looking motor form factor. Mm -hmm. And that enabled us to, to, that kind of put new design decisions on the table that had previously not been possible because we didn't have motors that looked like this. Gotcha. And then another thing is the reflected inertia, right? You right, don't strip so, your gears as frequently? So it does help with reflected inertia, but also, so you have a lower transmission ratio, mm -hmm. so reflected inertia goes with N squared, but also you have a much greater inertia. So it actually ends up sort of canceling out on the reflected inertia front. Gotcha. Okay. But so drone motors, and they're very flat, and so that gives you a lot of torque. And that, that's an interesting, how did you figure out to use drone motors? Uh, well, we keep pretty close eye on the motors that are being developed in industry and the properties that they have. So we just kind of became clear. There's a couple of different papers, one originally published by Professor John Sensinger mm -hmm. around outrunner motors that were used for uh, model airplanes. Yes. So between that study that originally put those kind of on people's radar and then the continued development of these for the drone industry, we just kind of kept watching. we found these. Gotcha. Any challenges interfacing with drone motors? Definitely. So a major challenge is commutation. So these motors are brushless, so they have three windings that have to be energized in a specific order. Mm -hmm. So they also have a very, very large number of pole pairs. So if you look at the motor, you can see lots and lots of different uh, windings around posts. It has 21 different pole pairs. So your standard kind of high-performance motor that's traditionally shaped would have four. So the, because there are so many pole pairs, that means the commutation has to switch very quickly because the poles are passing mm -hmm. very quickly around f through some sort of angle. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so most commercially available uh, drives, which is what's responsible for commu commutating these electric motors, cannot commutate motors with this many pole pairs as fast as we need them to. So we had to go with a uh, custom solution. Gotcha. And develop your own hardware to switch. So we use <clears throat> we use a uh, drive. So the the embedded systems provided for this leg come from a company called Defy, which mm -hmm. is out of Cambridge, out of Boston. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. All right. And then another interesting part of these motors is that they are, at least for the knee joint, series elastic. It uses series elastic actuation. Would you tell me a bit about this? First, what is series mm -hmm. elastic actuation? So series elastic actuator is, it comes from putting a spring element between the load and the output of the transmission. And it has a number of different properties, most of which are helpful, but some of which are detrimental. So the properties include, if we sense the deflection of that spring, then you can get a very accurate estimate of how much torque the, the actuator is providing or how much force in a linear system. And that's as compared to the back electromotive force that the motor is generating? Right? So, the, yeah, the way, so the way you might sense effort or torque if you were not using a series elastic actuator is by using the current passing through the motor, mm -hmm. which is roughly proportional to the torque being produced. Mm -hmm. But that ends up being extremely noisy, and you have to you have to account for some other factors. Gotcha. Okay, so, so it's better for measuring torques that the motors are generating. It's better for measuring torque that the motor is generating. Mm -hmm. 
but it, it has some other beneficial properties, like you can store energy in it. So for cyclic mm-hmm. tasks like walking, you can store energy and re- return that energy, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. But it comes at the cost of, of a technical property called torque bandwidth. So the, so the kind of the rate at which you can control torque is decreased. Mm-hmm. So, so some researchers use it, and some researchers do not. So for this robotic leg, specifically the robotic knee, we wanted researchers to have the choice between using series elasticity or not using it. The reason why you, want it, reason why you wouldn't use it is because it adds mass and it adds complexity. And we're always trying to lower mass and lower complexity. But if you do use it, you get this ability to control torque really well, energy storage, something called shock tolerance. Mm-hmm. So you get these other beneficial properties. So we wanted this leg to be able to serve kind of both sides of the robotic prosthetic community, those who wish to have series elasticity, and then also those who don't. Mm-hmm. And so how does that look? So uh, how is it in the knee? <clears throat> so inside the, the last stage of the transmission on the knee, there is a set of torsional springs that enable researchers to choose kind of how many springs are in parallel or have no springs in parallel, meaning it's sort of infinitely stiff. Mm-hmm. So that would be no series elastic actuator. So the, we've designed this spring mechanism to be compact and to sit actually inside the last stage of the transmission. So it's so you can't really tell that it's in there. Mm-hmm. But then if you want to change the spring constant inside of it, you take it apart, put a different number of spring discs mm-hmm. inside, and stack those up. That gives you a different number of sp- springs in parallel. So less researchers choose but stiffnesses between 100, approximately 100 newton meters per radian up to 600 newton meters per radian mm-hmm. at increments of 100 newton meters per radian, or sort of infinitely stiff, being that there's no spring. It is not a series elastic actuator. Gotcha. Okay, uh, and can you tell me about the difference between the knee and the ankle? So the the ankle doesn't have series elastic <clears throat> actuator. It does not. Right. So the ankle does not have series elastic actuation for two reasons. One being, you know, adding a series elastic mechanism in the knee added about two hundred grams, mm. and so what's the total weight? The total weight for the knee is about about two kilograms. The total mm. weight for the ankle is about one point eight kilograms. So you know, we're adding 200 grams, 10% of a total mass. So as we did not want to do that on the ankle joint, mass is especially detrimental to the human body as you add it lower and lower to the body. Mm-hmm. So, so mass on your ankle joint is harder to carry around than mass on your knee. So we didn't want to make the trade where we were adding extra mass at the ankle. So we chose to not have the ankle be series elastic at this time. The second reason is if you add the carbon composite foot onto the bottom of the ankle joint, then you get some elasticity in that carbon composite foot. And that elasticity provides a lot of the benefits that you would see in a series elastic actuator, like energy storage and shock tolerance, but it just doesn't provide this ability to control torque well. So we don't so we lose that because we're not sensing the deflection of that foot. Gotcha. Okay. And now these both have power on board. They do. Yeah, so each leg com- includes space for batteries that power that joint and then the electronics that run the motor and, and kind of low to mid-level control systems. Uh, so each joint can be run independently. Mm-hmm. The joints are meant to be controlled with a kind of a higher level computer telling each joint independently or together what to do. Mm-hmm. 
and we have kind of a system in place that enables researchers to command these these legs with their own control systems. Okay. Tell me a bit about that. How does that work? What kind of wireless communication are you using? And mm-hmm. So right now, <clears throat> right now the the legs do have wireless communication for data streaming. Mm-hmm. For the and control as well. Uh, the it kind of depends on how the control is structured. Potentially for control, but it, typically uh, what a researcher would do would be have their own control system. Let's say like mm-hmm. let's say I build control systems based on neuromuscular models, mm-hmm. and I would like to control a robotic leg. Mm-hmm. So then I would write code on an embedded system that includes all the things that I want to use to implement that neuromuscular model-based control. Yes. And then I determine through my through my models what I think the torque at the knee and torque at the ankle joint should be. Mm-hmm. Then I need to send that torque command to the joints themselves. So typically there's a there's a highest level controller which would be an embedded system like we'll say a Arduino or a Raspberry Pi <clears throat> that's on the leg itself. Mm-hmm. And that highest level control system is providing commands to the each joint. Mm-hmm. And those commands, so what we would provide is an API between the actuators on the leg mm-hmm. to whatever higher level control system the researcher wants to use. Okay. We have a Python based, currently we have a Python based API. Mm-hmm. So you would script your, your controller in Python and it opens a COM port and talks over USB to these actuators. We can control position, we can control mm-hmm. torque, gotcha. we can control the relationship between those in an open loop sense, which would be setting a, a leg stiffness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, now if someone, well, tell me what you'll be publishing, um, and what the timeline is for. So our, our first paper will be on the like kind of introduce this leg on the design and control and initial characterization, uh, both benchtop and clinical testing. Mm-hmm. So we hope to submit that paper in the spring for over winter spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there'll probably be a second publication that's more in-depth detail on the technical design, and mm-hmm. that will be published in probably the three months after, the, or at least submitted. So these are submitted in spring. In published spring. a few months after. Pro- yeah. Published, I'd say, a minimum months. of six months, yeah. So I'd say, like, I, late, late 2018 would be when these, when these publications would be available for, to the public. Got you. What about um, online documentation for this? A website? So we'll have a website... For now, there'll be a website hosted on our uh, lab website, the Neurobionics Lab. But then as the project gets kind of further and further along, it'll have its own dedicated website through University of Michigan mm-hmm. where you can download CAD files, bill materials, uh, quotes, machine drawings, kind mm-hmm. of the whole, uh, everything you would need to order and assemble. Mm-hmm. And so that's how someone would get a hold of one of these. That's they right. get these instructions, essentially, on how to build one of these themselves, and then they contact different people to actually make the parts for them, get them, assemble them in-house. Right. So we tried, we tried to be thoughtful about this, but it, does, it is the development and construction would be up to each individual researcher. Mm-hmm. So if you decided that you want one, you would go online, you would download the files and mm-hmm. the instructions and or place your orders through your own purchasing system. Mm-hmm. Um, the components of the leg almost entirely are machined. Yes. So maybe entirely. So everything is machined, except for, like, it's a belt drive transmission, except for the belts. And the motor actuator system comes from uh, Defy. So there is, the only thing that you're actually purchasing that is not 
kind of from a machine shop mm-hmm. is bearings and fasteners and kind of a McMaster car type type mm-hmm. parts. Yes. And then you will also make the software API available for Right. These? Yep. So you'll also be able to download the software API. Gotcha. And how long do you think it takes, uh, given that you have all the parts machined, to assemble one of these? The full leg system or just the knee or just the ankle? I'd say to assemble the knee, it probably takes, if you're good at it, a half hour. Okay. The and ankle then- is similar. To disassemble, it might take less than 10 minutes, I'd say. But to disassemble is fast. Yes. To assemble, it takes maybe it takes maybe a half hour. Okay. And so when will this website be published? Or when will this website be up? The website of the project should be up over winter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the website will be up. We probably won't release parts to be downloaded and machined till I'd say, the, the release date of our first paper. Mm-hmm. That's probably how that will go. Gotcha. And then what's the larger goal of this project? The highest level goal is to, is to translate research out of academia and to benefit people who, who need it. And that's like something I think we haven't seen enough of in rehabilitation robotics. So that's the kind of that's what's compelling me on this project. Um, but in the kind of more more short-term kind of research world, I'd like to see people who wouldn't normally, be studying robotic legs, start studying them because they can do it so quickly and easily and for such a low cost that we kind of see a entrance into this field by researchers who are maybe wouldn't have done it otherwise, like those studying humanoid robotics, for example. So that would that's one thing I think would would be really, really great. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it from us for today. As always, we recommend that you go and check out robohub.org for more information on this and all our past episodes, as well as lots of additional exciting robot-related content. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Open Source with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.